Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today my guest is Chris Newby. Chris Newby is an award-winning science writer at Stanford University and the senior producer of the Lyme disease documentary, Under Our Skin, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and was a 2010 Oscar semifinalist. Newby has two degrees in engineering, a bachelor's degree from the University of Utah, and a master's degree from Stanford University. Previously, Newby was a technology writer for Apple and other Silicon Valley companies. She lives in Palo Alto today. Chris and I are going to be talking about her book, Bitten, The Secret History of Lyme Disease and Biological Weapons. Welcome, Chris. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank, thank you, you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. I, I just really uh, like want to get the word out about Lyme disease. So thank you. Absolutely. And, you know, I really, you know, wanted to have you on the podcast for so many reasons. And of course, your wonderful book, Bitten, that we'll dive into. And yeah, a big part of my passion and journey. Um, I've been doing this work for about 10 years. And, you know, it's the really rewarding work, but it's, you know, heartbreaking work. You know, every patient's story is just, you know, it's just, um, you know, how you said um, to Helen back, right? The, these patients go through so much and there's so much confusion and, just not being heard uh, for way too long, I think, before they get a proper diagnosis and the right treatment. And even treatment can be challenging, right? And so I just really, um, yeah, appreciate you sharing your journey and your story so we can really make sense of what we're seeing, right? And why, you know, why we are, um, you know, we have a population that's really struggling um, with Lyme and that it is really an underlying cause for so many chronic health conditions. So, so thank you for your work. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Well, let's just dive in. Obviously, you, your personal journey um, really uh, prompted you to write this book, uh, Bitten. And, you know, as I already mentioned, you you had this journey of, you know, to hell and back. And again, that's what I see every day. And, um, you know, really, how did Lyme impact your own health? And how are you how are you doing today? Um, uh, well, it was uh, pretty much well, my husband and I went on a family vacation to Martha's Vineyard in 2002. I was in my early 40s. We had two middle school boys, and we went to Martha's Vineyard, and uh, unbeknownst to us, we were both bitten by ticks. And then we uh, got back to California, and it was a really horrendous journey, uh, a year undiagnosed with two tick-borne diseases. So we saw 10 doctors, uh, and... It cost probably $60,000 in various tests. Uh, we were both unable to work, you know, and so it was a year undiagnosed, and then it was probably five years, four to five years of treatments before we were 100% back to our old selves. And I'm happy to say that today I'm great. I mean, it's been maybe 10 years since I've had symptoms. So um, it's a happy story and that I hope gives hope to people who are in the middle of their Lyme journey right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important, Chris, that, um, you know, especially when patients um, start this journey, right, it can be so overwhelming and so scary. You know, the symptoms that an average Lyme patient experiences can really make them feel like they're dying, right? So the intense anxiety to, you know, the neurological symptoms, to the pain, to, you know, everything in between. And, you know, I often, you know, a big part of my work is just really calming, you know, people down and like giving them that, yes, even though this is really hard, this, there is an end to this 
that it's absolutely possible to get better. And, you know, that comes up um, a lot. Patients ask me, are you sure I'm going to get better? Is this really going to end? And so I really, um, I really am so grateful you're sharing um, a story of hope and of healing because that is, you know, a big message we want to get out there. So, um, so let's just, you know, dive in. So we want to, you know, you obviously wrote, um, this book bitten, um, it's a lot about your personal journey and, you know, we both have mentioned, I mean, you, um, you were undiagnosed for one year. Um, and so why do you think there is such an issue with, um, misdiagnosis or underdiagnosis or what are, what are we dealing with, with Lyme in that way? Well, uh, First of all, when you're bitten by a tick, you can have multiple pathogens, which create sort of messy, not textbook-like symptom sets. And I think the, the doctors are focused on one disease only, Lyme disease, and so whatever you show up with might not uh, match what they spent 15 minutes on in the 80s when they went to medical school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, you know, like with my husband and I, we both got Lyme disease plus babesiosis, which is a malaria-like parasite, and that's like a really strange set of symptoms. Um, and and people in California aren't familiar with babesiosis symptoms, so you know that's one of the reasons that it took so long. But the other thing is. Uh, I, I like to say, I'm writing an essay on this now, Lyme is the disease that time forgot. The um, early screening tests are really no better than a t- coin toss as to whether you have the disease or not. And it's really based on this antibody technology that was invented in the 40s right after World War II. And it doesn't really measure whether you have the active disease in you. All it measures is if you've been exposed to the disease and is your body um, creating antibodies in response to that um, infection, which could be now or could have been in the past. You know, so I think our modern doctors are really used to thinking, oh, this is a gold standard test, you know, but they don't know it's like 30 to 50 percent accuracy for the screening test. And you might really have Lyme disease. But it, they, maybe they test you in the first month where it's not really reliable, and they say, well, it's negative, you don't have it. Mm-hmm. And that sends people down this uh, Alice in Wonderland hole of specialists and testing and our profit-driven medical system, you know, which just starts to add up. Absolutely. And yeah, you know, I, I think that's such a good point, the, you know, that you were saying that it's the disease that time, you know, forgot and that, you know, there's still so much, even here we are 2020, right, when we're recording this and that there's still so much to be desired um, for testing. And, you know, have you, um, do you have any opinions of some of the other tests out there or some of the tests that you feel that are really needed um, in order to make um, a more accurate diagnosis in the beginning or just, um, you know, to help people get diagnosed um, more quickly? Um, Definitely. The thing about uh, Lyme disease, which is a Borrelia, which is a spirochetal bacteria, is what we're finding out now is that there are multiple strains in different places of the country. Like, uh, there's a second strain, which is called Borrelia uh, mayomii, and we don't even have any tests for that. And, you know, the tests that are used across the nation are for Borrelia burgdorferi, which was found around Long Island, Lyme, Connecticut. 
you know, and so that's coming up with false positives. Um, and so that's, that's just one of the problems. Um, and then the co-infections. So the tests I think we need are, uh, we need to take, to have a test that uses modern DNA microbial techniques. So we're actually measuring if there's a live organism in you. And then we also need to look at it as real-world real situation, not that one tick's going to deliver one germ, but let's say there could be a couple um, disease-causing pathogens that's transmitted to you. So let's take one you know, drop of blood and run it through maybe the top 10 tick-borne diseases if you know you've been bitten by a tick or if you suspect you have. And that way, you know, we can treat the germ with the proper drugs really early, minimal amount of fuss, and then you can go on with your life and never know the the bullet that you dodged. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, um, again, just been doing this 10 years and we have like the antibody tests and then there are, you know, there's one lab that we've used over the years, um, DNA connections. That's more of like a PCR test looking for actual DNA of not only Borrelia, but also the co-infections. Um, you know, we developed at Sophia a method of provocation because part of, I'm sure, which we'll get into later, how um, Lyme and co-infections are not just living in the bloodstream um, that they, you know, can hide and, um, you know, create symptoms in the connective tissue and the fascia inside the cell and the brain and the heart. And, you know, that's why sometimes we are not able to always demonstrate, you know, the presence of DNA just on a, a blood test. And so um, we developed a provocation test of challenging um it was basically a urine collection um, after people would get either lymph drainage or deep um, body massage or ultrasound just to really stimulate that movement of um, microbes um, from the connective tissue into the lymph and um, eventually make their way to the kidneys and via the urine. And we were actually quite surprised with how many positive tests we would see when that test got in motion. And then the lab had to, I think, um, change their parameters. I'm sure it was, um, all, there was probably all sorts of pressures on them. Um, but, um, but yeah, that is something, um, you know, we saw, and then there's the lymphocyte test, right? So looking at the actual, um, immune system reactivity, cause right. It's like, is the bug there? And then what is the immune system doing to the bug? Right. And how can we, um, how can we support people and treat it appropriately? So I, I think there's still so much to be desired, Chris. I mean, again, I would have hoped even in my 10 years that we had, you know, just more affordable testing, more streamlined testing, um, and more accurate testing, right. As well. And part of the problem, you know, is that people with Lyme, when you have Lyme, your immune system gets very, um, you know, compromised, um, in a lot of ways. And so even looking for an immune response is not always the most, um, fruitful way of seeing if the uh, immune system is mounting an, an infection. So, um, you know, I digress a little bit, but these are just things that I'm always, you know, contemplating with Lyme testing. And I'm, I, I really hear your point, um, with this. Yeah. And I mean, the immune system, I mean, the immune system provo provocation I I've heard is a very successful approach. So I think that's smart because, um, I've been talking with a research researcher at Stanford and she was saying, you know, that the Lyme disease spirochete gets out of the bloodstream as soon as possible. It doesn't want those killer cells after it. So it, uh, as soon as it can, it 
drills into immune protected sites. So in your joints that have scar tissue or inside your brain. Um, so I, I think that strategy is a smart one. Yeah, and I, I think we have a lot of room, you know, to perfect that and to, yeah, make that, you know, the next standard. So yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, um, and then Chris, um, with that being said, um, you know, just, I want to um, also highlight your story since, you know, your story, again, is, you know, one of hope. So we want to talk about, okay, all of the all of your research and all of um, your journey of learning really why, you know, Lyme exists and why we're dealing with this as such a, per- a pervasive, um, you know, root cause of so many chronic illnesses. But I also want to take a moment to also um, hear kind of like your story and like really what healed you, because I know people who might be uh, struggling with Lyme and hearing that you recovered, like what was your journey to wellness and what really got you the help and your health back? Um, well, when we we showed up uh, in July back in California, you know, we got the runaround. They, my my husband and I got sick on the very first day, you know, a week after we got back from Martha's Vineyard, which was like number two in the U.S. for Lyme disease and number one for babesiosis. Yet all the California doctors says that's a rare disease. We're not going to even burn the money on a test for that. Or oh, we think that's a virus. Or you know. Um, for you and your husband to get both get Lyme disease would be like winning the lottery. Mm. And you know, I'm thinking like, wow, that's, that's that like, oh, I really don't want to win. Mm. Or, uh, so then you start making your way to the infectious diseases doctors and uh, they've been indoctrinated um, with this scenario or this paradigm where, you know, a lot of hypochondriacs like to say they have Lyme disease, like they're, you know, they want a label that's convenient and they really are just needy. And so, you know, our first infectious diseases doctor says, well, you know, uh, well, they give us a round of doxycycline and that we'd had the disease five months then and then it cleared it up. And, and then a month later or a few weeks later, the symptoms came back worse than ever. And I called up the doctor and said, oh, please. And I was almost in tears. Please, can we have more of those antibiotics? That was the first thing that worked in four months of being really, really sick. And he goes, no, we, we can't treat based on your reaction to drugs. Mm. You, have to be on, you have to follow some scientific paper rather than how your patient feels, which is not very, you know, empathetic at all. And then he goes, well, I think what we're seeing here is a psychosomatic couples thing, you know, where he's basically saying, oh, you know, your husband's this busy businessman and you're wanting attention, so you're faking this disease and your husband's, picking up on that <laughs> so oh it was just God. so ridiculous uh and uh finally we went we made our way to an academic medical system and the nice thing about that is these infectious disease doctors who are hard to get to i mean it's, it's hard to get to these specialists and they're super expensive but he and his um uh, fellowship student ran every test known to man on us and for the first time in in like nine months we got a positive, or I got a positive on the Lyme ELISA, which is the antibody test. My husband didn't test positive. Uh, and then they said quickly, well, uh, that's all we can do for you. And they, they fired us. And, you know, I came back and I called them up and I said, hey, I just looked at the CDC website and it says, if you test positive for this ELISA antibody test, you have to do the next step of the test. And 
they were really embarrassed, but I, I think they knew that they just wanted to ditch us as patients mm. because the department at that time had an unwritten policy. You know, most of those Lyme, people who say they have Lyme are really hypochondriacs. We don't want to waste our time with that. Mm. So they tested the second test and that was positive too, but they fired us. So then we were, um, well, I was just devastated, <laughs> you know, just in tears because, you know, neither of us were able to work or function as human beings at the time. We had brain fog and pain, gut pain, um, crushing, crushing fatigue, uh, neurological problems like you can't believe. Uh, and we had just been kicked out of the best hospital on the west coast you know mm. so then we went on the internet and you know it turns out 24 7 there's all these Lyme patients trying to help other Lyme patients it's this whole community and uh very shortly they connected us with a Lyme doctor who was really good in our town she'd been trained at Stanford but she was also a you know an integrated doctor so she was used a lot of principles that naturopaths do about detoxifying and supporting your your gut biome uh so you know she immediately ran the right test for us and we came back positive for these uh two tick-borne diseases and then we started our healing journey which you know is another ordeal as you know yeah, no, thank you for sharing that. And so, you know, so basically by the, the time you got bit by the tick in Martha's Vineyard, how long did it take you to actually get the the Lyme, the positive Lyme test and the, um, I guess the, the first positive Lyme test, that ELISA test, how long of a period was that? That was, that was uh, 10 months and then it took us, you know, another month. And I, I mean, another two months to find the right doctor, get it, get into the office and then get a treatment. So it was a year from wow. the bite to actually getting treated. Yeah, yeah. Which is short. Which is short. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But phrase I hear all the time. I know that's that's even what's more heartbreaking, right? That's even um, that's a relatively short amount of time. And then how long did it take you, Chris, from the time of that diagnosis and working with that integrative doctor for you to feel like you had recovered your health? Um, six. Well, six months. After six months, my husband was able to, you know, work pretty well. He wasn't 100% cured because uh, we hadn't really discovered the Babesia. The antibody test didn't work in the beginning because our antibody complexes were all gummed up and it wasn't showing up mm -hmm. on the test. So my husband, uh, to feel like you could, you were half human, it took us about him six months, me a year, but to be like, functioning at like 90, 95%, that was pretty much five years for both of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like we felt crummy the whole time. It was that we would go on uh, combos of antibiotics for, you know, a month and a half and then wait and see, you know, and then if the symptoms came back, then we would try another combo. Um, and it was just sort of being orchestrated by our doctor who treated a lot of people successfully. So she had a strategy that she followed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, no, thank, thank you so much for sharing your journey. And, you know, I, I also see, I mean, you had a clear tick bite, right? So you had a clear event and yes, it took you a long time to get diagnosed and to get better. Um, but what about all the people who um, come down with Lyme who might not know of the, an actual tick bite or have potentially some other route of transmission? Can you educate us on that? Well, we, we actually didn't know we had been bitten by ticks, but we knew we'd been in an endemic area for ticks. Mm -hmm. So we didn't know, which was one reason they didn't test us. I mean, I was bitten uh, in my hair, uh, underneath my hairline in the back of my neck, so it's not a place I can see very easily. Um, my husband never was sure where his tick bite is, and we half think maybe it was sexually transmitted, but... Uh, we just don't know. Mm -hmm. There have been no studies on that, but we just have anecdotes from Lyme physicians that say, wow, there do, do seem to be a lot of couples who both have it. And, and certainly spirochetes have been seen in vaginal fluid and sperm. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been studies on that. That doesn't prove that it's transmitted that way, but the point is, you know, we need to do studies on this because it's really important. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, no, I, I appreciate you bringing up the sexual transmission that that comes up a lot in my practice of, you know, just questions about that, um, you know, and, you know, again, people wanting to, um, you know, be safe and protect their partner and, you know, all of that. And I agree, I think there's so much more research. Um, you know, I'm still surprised at how limited, you know, the knowledge base is for uh, to guide, you know, physicians, um, you know, from that research point of view of the sexual transmission, but I, I, I absolutely, we know it's sexual transmission and then maternal fetal transfer as well. Um, you know, so there are these other routes and then, you know, we call Lyme a vector, you know, um, born illness and that it's not just ticks, right? There could be other vectors that uh, co-transmit both Borrelia and co-infections, um, you know, like mosquitoes, fleas, um, and other, you know, potential insects. Um, um, do you have any other thoughts on that before we move on? Um, I, you know, I, the message I like to put out is we just need a lot more research dollars for this disease, especially considering it's the largest vector-borne disease in the U.S. and it's impacting millions and millions of people. And right now, I, I think we fund it at the level of leprosy, which just doesn't seem right. And there have only been like four randomized treatment trials. And our current recommendations for treatments, which is doxycycline uh, for adults, you know, there's a, a 15 to 20% failure rate for that. You know, and if we we're talking about a disease like AIDS, well, that big of a treatment rate, a lot of people are going to die. So, you know, we just need more research on this. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, um, I guess, can you comment and we can start our kind of dialogue of, you know, why is there not, um, you know, research dollars, um, you know, spent on investigating Lyme disease? What, what can you share about that? Or what, what are your thoughts at this point? Um, well, when I, I did, I was a senior producer on this documentary on Lyme disease, which was under our skin. And I did the deep dive on, 
conflicts of interest associated with Lyme disease. And, and one thing that I found after some digging is that if you look at the people that write the infectious diseases guidelines for diagnosis and treatment, a huge percentage of that panel of 12 had patents on test kits or vaccines in the early days. So uh, we're, we're beyond, I guess, the patent there. But what that did was they had incentive to, um, uh, like, there was profit motive to fight off other competitors because they own these early patents. And that crew that writes the guidelines, they continue to file patents, for example, for that um, Borrelia mayoni. So, you know, rather than having a test that was screened for multiple Borrelias, they're patenting individual tests, you know, which is more money into the system and it takes longer for patients. So there's more chance of them falling into the chronic part of the disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like there's, a, you know, um, a whole overall and overhaul that needs to be done and motivating, right? Um, um, I guess the industry to do these tests, which seems just so backwards, right? When you're on, you know, on the front lines, or if you're struggling, that that is what has to, you know, create change. But um, but no, um, no, under our skin, um, obviously, Dr. Klinghart was a big part of that, and I know so many of our, um, you know, patients have found that you know, documentary, but to be helpful. And you really started the movement. I, I remember I was in naturopathic school when I, um, you know, saw under our skin and I agree Like I mean, even as a naturopath, um, you know, I think we had like one afternoon lecture on Lyme disease, right? Still the, 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 the training is so limited, right? In, um, medical schools and even alternative medical schools. Um, you know, we, we still have a long way to go and properly educating, um, physicians to diagnose and treat, but, um, but no kudos to you for that film. That was a really big, um, yeah, I think it was a big sea change in awareness. Yeah. I mean, it was the first, uh, major media piece to show the, the patient point of view before then you wanted to know about Lyme patients. You read about it in New England Journal of Medicine or, or JAMA and, you know, that presents a picture where it's overdiagnosed and a lot of these people who say they have Lyme disease are just suffering from the aches and pains of daily living, you know. So <laughs> it, it was, uh, I think the film uh, made a lot of people cry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because all of a sudden they, you know, they realized there are people like that in me. And, and the people who didn't have Lyme disease said, oh, um, you know, I didn't realize it was this big of a problem and that these are the symptoms because that's what I found is the symptom set in the medical literature was just totally different than what people were experiencing in the field. And the other thing is during the three and a half years of the filming of that, that documentary, uh, we interviewed, this is Andy Abraham Wilson's in uh, Sausalito, who's a very talented filmmaker. He's the director and uh, owned the production company, you know, the, the problem is nationwide now. There have been uh, cases reported by patients in all 50 states. So I think that was an, an important message to get out. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No, I've, I'm grateful that you all did that work and came together. And um, yeah, and you know, even how many years now what, um, since the film came out, what year did Under Our Skin come out? Um, um, 2008, 2008 in Tr- 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 and then it was an Oscar 
uh, semifinalist in 2010. Wow. And I think still watch it all over the place streaming. Yeah, yeah. When you look about, I look at, you know, tw- now being 2020, do you think that, would you have thought were, um, are you surprised at where we are? Um, you know, did you think when you were um, making the film, we'd be at a, di- a different place? Uh, I, I, I am very sad that not much has changed. I mean, I, like a year ago, my book Bitten came out and I did a, a talk on Long Island, which is really ground zero for the Lyme disease outbreak. And it's been, you know, 40 years since we first noticed it. And uh, my husband, who's been, you know, it's just too painful for him to hear the blow by blow of the Lyme, the, the efforts to get uh, attention for Lyme patients. But he went to that presentation, that all day presentation, and he walked away shaking his head saying, nothing has changed in 10 years. Yeah. And, you know, I get, now I get, uh, since I'm semi famous in the Lyme world, I get maybe one uh, connection a week from a patient and they tell me these stories and it sounds just like my story from 2002, 2003. And it just breaks my heart. And it just, it makes me angry too because of the injustice of it that this disease has been neglected and it's so preventable. Uh, There would be no Lyme wars or Lyme controversy or all this uh, carnage if we had a test that worked in the first one reliable test. test, you know, you not, know, not even a perfect, a perfect test, test, just just a semi reliable test that's better, better than, than a coin flip. flip. It just mm-hmm. it just makes me angry. Yeah, no, and I think that's. Yeah, I think it's um, anger is a very healthy emotion. You know, I I think anger, sadness, you know, all the grief that, you know, you see um, so many. I mean, our Lyme patients are like some of the most amazing, you know, people who've been through so much and are so courageous and determined in what they go to recover their health. And, you know, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, if you're listening out there and you just imagine like your life turning around and upside down you know, sometimes overnight, sometimes it's a gradual process and really not being able to do what you love, right? And um, engage in life. And so I, I see a big part of my job is returning people to to life, right? And for them to be able to live a passion, passion um, you know, passionate and purposeful life, right? And I mean, that's what we're all here to do. And so, yes, I, I hear you. And so your book, Bitten, Chris, um, you know, it's obviously, you know, it took, I'm sure, um, many years, maybe five years, I think you said to write, and you really connect the dots between Lyme disease and biological weapons. And this has been something, you know, that has been seemingly controversial, um, to try to understand, you know, that connection and, um, you know, make sense of, you know, why people are suffering with the illness and how they're suffering. But can you just start to share the story of like, the connection between Lyme disease and um, its um, its um, origin as a biological weapon. Yeah. So, yeah, so I mean, I mean, the, the first the first clue, clue that Andy, Andy the, director the director and I realized, realized that there may be more to this story than, than oh, oh, all, all of a sudden there was a random, random mutation and they take this, this new uh, virulent, virulent disease appeared. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's, that's the party, party line, line, right? But we but were. Um, um, we were trying, we were to, get trying to get a government, a government expert, expert to, to be interviewed, be interviewed for, the for the film. This is around, around 2007, 2007 and, and NIH and CDC refused, refused to, to let us, let us talk, talk to any of the experts. experts. So we said, we'll, we'll just fly, fly out, out to Montana, Montana and interview, interview Willie, Willie Bergdorfer, who discovered, discovered the causative, causative agent of Lyme disease, disease in 81, 1981. 1981. 
so we were so there, we were there, and there, we were there. He um, at the end, at the end of the interview, after we turned the camera, the camera off, off, he said, he said "Oh, I didn't, oh, I didn't tell, tell you anything with a glimmer in his eye." So there had been rumors swirling around about Lyme disease being caused by a bioweapon. You know, but we just. That wasn't, that wasn't what the documentary what the was about, about and, and nobody, nobody was willing, was willing to talk. To talk. Mm-hmm. So that, that seed was planted, was planted there. there. And then, and then um, after, after, like, like a year after, after the film was done, done over and over done, and done with, with um, one of my, one of my another, another filmmaker, filmmaker friend says, says I, got I got really to confess to say that, that he recognized, he recognized one, of one of the, the organisms, organisms when he was when investigating the Lyme outbreak. He was on the, on the team, team trying to trying figure, to figure out, out why all these people getting, getting sick, sick in the 70s, 70s around, around Long Island, Long Island Connecticut. Connecticut. He, he, you know, you know, he got, he got really willing to say on camera, camera that, that uh, he, recognized he recognized something that was from, from the bioweapons program, program from back, from back in, the in the day. So that was, so that the, was start. the start. And, you know, and, you know, I really, I really was, tired was tired of Lyme disease. I wanted to move on. I had a really good job as a science writer at Stanford. But that would, you know, you know, if it just felt, it just felt irresponsible, irresponsible to keep going, going and, and ignore something, something that, that could be true. true. So, that so that started, started the five-year investigation into, into really, really asking, asking the question, was, was there a bioweapon bio there, there, there that caused the outbreak? outbreak. Willie never, never said it was Broly or Dorfroy. He said it was another microbe he recognized. So what, you know, that was five years of research. I interviewed Willie's history and got some access to some of his original lab books that, Lab, lab notebooks that he had donated, had donated to, to Utah, Utah University. University. And then, then I, um, you know, you know I, went I went out and talked to him, to him and he, <laughs> this is shocking, shocking news, news everyone, to everyone, but, but Willie was uh, in, the, in the, the U.S. US bioweapons program, program weaponizing fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes for years. years. Hmm. Uh, uh, Ring to Fort Dietrich, Dietrich, the offensive, the offensive program. program. Uh, and... So, so that, that made his confession, confession all, the more all the more believable than, than I did, did you know, research, research on, on our, our entomological, entomological warfare, warfare program. program. I found, I found an eyewitness who said, said he dropped, droped poison, poison ticks, ticks on, on Cuban, Cuban sugar, sugar workers, workers in 1962 as part of, part of, part the, of plot the plot to oust Castro. Castro. Uh, and, and, uh, and then, and then I sort I of... Sort of Look, look backwards, backwards from, from the day, the, day we meet, we meet the, the year they the year said, they said Lyme, Lyme was discovered, which was, which was 1981, and say, well, it, it, you know, you know, that's, that's not, not when people started getting sick. I started reading all, all the literature on what happened ten years, ten years before, before that, that. And, it and it turns out, out the first Lyme, Lyme cases were identified, identified in 1968 in Connecticut. And oh, and oh, by the way, there are also two other really freaky new tick-borne diseases that all of a sudden appeared around 1968. And so, and then, so then you see, you know, if you, know, if you, if you say, if you say okay, okay, we're, we're weaponizing fleas, ticks, and mosquitoes, mosquitoes with dangerous germs, germs in them, and, and there were a there lot of open, open air, open air uncontrolled, uncontrolled tests, tests, you know, you know could, this could this whole thing, thing have been caused, caused by, by, you know, you know irresponsible weapons, weapons designers, designers doing, doing experiments, experiments where they, they deployed them in foreign countries? countries. And so... Um, yeah, there's so much here, right, Krista, unpack and, you know, we're, um, we're recording this in the time of, you know, COVID and, you know, we're friends with Judy Mikovits and, you know, she talks often about her work at Fort Detrick and what goes on there. And I think, um, you know, maybe somebody who's listening out here is like, why, wait, what do you mean? Why does the U.S. have a biological, you know, um, warfare even department? Um, and can you just, you know, share with people like why that, 
that's a reality and, you know, um, you know, just give them some context for that. Yeah, yeah, so the so quick, the quick history, history is after, after World, World War II, we, we captured, captured some, some of the German, German and Japanese soldiers and realized, and realized they had really, really extensive bioweapons bio programs, programs, insect-born insect too. And, and so, so we sort of, sort of as, as Americans, Americans, I'm saying we Americans, uh, we, uh, we picked their brains on what they were doing, doing. The, the Russians were doing the same, they sort, sort of started, started this biological weapons race, and... I guess, I guess it just, it just kept, kept on escalating, escalating. and my and book sort of goes through some of the more outrageous, outrageous experiments, experiments done on, done on consenting, consenting people in America. America. And, then and then there was, there was an, accident an accident in Utah, Utah with, nerve with nerve gas, gas and a bunch of sheep died. And, and so, so Nixon, Nixon was president at the time. At the time, he says, look at, look no, at no, no more no bioweapons. Bio so by 72, officially all bioweapons programs were supposed to be shut down. Now, now uh, in, the, in labs, the labs, it was, it was allowable, allowable to do defensive bioweapons research. research. So, so right now, right now officially, we're doing defensive bioweapons programs. But, you know, as long as, as, long you, as have you have dangerous, dangerous microbes growing, growing in a petri dish, dish or a flask or, or a test, or test tube, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take, that take that much to, to make it make an offensive program. The Soviets, the Soviets uh, I mean, I mean it's, believed it's believed by experts, experts Soviets, Soviets and, and Chinese have continued their, bi- their bi- offensive, offensive bioweapons programs, programs. but, but I, didn't really I didn't really look into, into that. that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you could have a whole nother book probably, you know, Chris, on, on those um and that right now but um so okay so that that gives us some context and then um so when you map out your research and you know look at um the founder of Lyme disease um and Willie Borgdorfer and you know his discovery of you know the spirochete Borrelia Borgdorferi that we name him it after him um as a causative agent to you know, Lyme, how do we make, how do we kind of tighten up that connection that he has, you know, he worked in the bioweapons program, he worked on weaponizing ticks and mosquitoes and fleas, and then he does, you know, here he finds, you know, the spirochete that is um, responsible uh, for creating Lyme disease. Well, well I, I, he, wasn't he wasn't necessarily, necessarily uh, he was, he was, uh, Cog in, cog in the wheel of the biological weapons program. program. So, so I don't, I don't know, know what he what did, he did was, was he put very dangerous, dangerous diseases inside, inside ticks in the, in the 50s. 50s. Whatever, Whatever showed, showed up in the late, in the late 60s, 60s, I believe was part of their airborne, airborne weapons program, program where they were, they were they, they, in the, in, by the late 60s, 60s they thought, thought well, like putting germs, germs inside, inside of ticks is difficult because you're trying to keep two living things going. So that so they could be you know, you know spread, spread out, out over you know, over, a over a city or, city a or a battalion. battalion. So, so they started, they started uh, growing, growing microbes. microbes. Some of some them, them can be carried, can be carried by ticks in large, in large bats, bats freeze drying, them, making, making, making the particles, particles that would float in the air, in the air like, like the anthrax powder. powder. Uh, uh, and they, and did, they a did a bunch of open tests. And so I think I think Willie thought, and what I think is that. Some of these, these aerosolized germs, possibly a raquetzal or a virus, got out, out into, into the populations through these sort of CIA, CIA tests. And, and at the same, at the same time, time, the Army was testing with the spread, spread of ticks on the eastern, eastern seaboard, specifically in, in near Norfolk, Norfolk Virginia. Virginia. So they were, they were mass-producing mass producing ticks by the hundreds of thousands. thousands. They were, they were um, um, 
irradiating, irradiating them, them, making them radioactive, radioactive so, they so they could see how see far, how far they, would they would go with a Geiger, with a Geiger counter. Perhaps, perhaps that they, they drop, drop enemies, enemies and no. Okay, okay you know, in, a year, in a year, the infected, infected ticks spread, spread so many, so many miles, miles through birds, birds bunny, bunny rabbits, deer. deer. And, and oh, I, think oh, I think it's a series, series of, unfortunate of unfortunate accidents where, where uh, the army released these really, really aggressive lone, lone star ticks. ticks. They're man-biting, man they have eyes, they can stalk prey, they spread this red meat allergy. They, they, they released them by the hundreds, hundreds of thousands on the Atlantic, the Atlantic bird, bird flyway. They went they all went up and down, down the east coast. coast. Plus, you plus you had these open air tests with particles. particles. And I and think, I think maybe, maybe it's a mixture, a mixture of those accidents, accidents that, caused that caused this freaky, freaky outbreak. outbreak. And, and, you know, maybe, you know, maybe Lyme, Lyme disease, maybe the, maybe the scientists are right. Lyme disease is a bad disease. Maybe it's a mixture of Lyme disease plus some weaponized thing. So, you know, in the book... I didn't, I didn't, I don't, I don't prove, prove 100%, 100% that this, that this happened, happened, but I lay, lay out, the out the evidence. I say, I say what, we know, what we know, what we don't, we don't know. know. And I say, and I say scientists, scientists, I've gone as gone far as, far as, as I, can I can go, not, not accessing all the secret documents, documents and not, and not having, having a, a gene, gene sequencer, sequencer, but scientists take it, take it from here. Yeah, no, and I think you've done an amazing job doing that and painting this, you know, story and picture and, you know, this, um, you know, again, the intentions behind it, whatever, it's just, you know, when you um, have a lot of these factors coming together, you know, we have to, you know, I, I agree, we have to look at this because on some level, you know, as you experience with your own health, um, you know, the, these, uh, you know, Lyme disease is very, you know, can be very hard to treat even when you get the diagnosis, right? And so it makes us, you know, think about, you know, what are possible mechanisms and reasons of why, um, you know, maybe this is more of a virulent strain or a virulent um, species of, you know, um, spirochetes or even um, the co-infection piece. I mean, how did you, in your research, how did you make sense of the co-infections and the widespread, um, you know, co-infection, um, you know, diseases that we see. So when we talk about co-infections, many of you already know, we're thinking of, um, you know, um, bacteria, also viruses, um, you know, sometimes even other pathogens that get co-transmitted alongside typically Borrelia. So they can be Babesia, Bartonella is very common. Um, you know, you mentioned Rickettsia. So how did, how did you, um, how did you make sense of the co-infection piece of the story? Well, my, well, my turning, turning point, point on, on that was when, was when I, interviewed I interviewed Willie Bergdorfer in 2013, and he said, when I was, I was uh, analyzing, analyzing the blood, the blood of Dr. Dr. Alan Steer, Steer, this was, was uh, in, the in the late 70s, 79, he says, I looked, I looked at the beer, the blood, the blood and, I and I saw this unknown rickettsia. So rickettsia is a really, really small bacterium that goes inside a cell and behaves more like a virus, so it goes into the cell. Reproduces, reproduces, explodes, explodes the cell, the cell and goes on and does that over and over again. again. So, so the common, the common name, name for that family, family or, or the most the popular, popular name is the Rocky, Rocky Mountain Spotted, spotted Fever. And that's, and that's the, the most deadly, deadly uh, tick-borne uh, disease in the, in the U.S. And, and the U.S. government, government had, had an active weaponization program for that. And they were figuring out how to deploy it as an aerosol from planes. 
And it would, and be, it would be very, 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 very deadly. deadly. They also, they also worked, worked on, on some viruses, viruses which, which, which would be chronic, chronic incapacitating agents. So, so you could you spread, spread those, those from a plane, plane and, and uh, there would be, be no way to trace it back to its origin without DNA analysis. And this is a perfect weapon because it would chronically disable a whole population with a disease that looks like chronic Lyme. We say chronic Lyme is... So, so I guess, I guess that, that made me realize, realize uh, that, whole that whole experience with William, William once I did, I did background, background research, research that, that it could be it could the co-infections co-infections that, that are, that are maybe, Lyme maybe Lyme disease isn't the worst thing, thing, thing that's making, making people chronic, chronic ill. Maybe, maybe it's Lyme, Lyme disease plus, plus this weaponized co-infection, a rickettsial virus, and it's just undetected. There's no test for it, and doctors aren't looking for it. Um, and, and that could that explain, could explain why, 15 why 15 to 20% percent percent of the people, people who are bitten, are bitten by a tick have a, have lot, a lot of trouble getting better. better. And, you know, I have, have to say that the U.S. Army, I mean, I, I, mean, went, I went into, into the, archives. the archives. They did, they did pilot, pilot studies on brucellosis, brucella, brucellosis, bartonella, the rickettsials, like I mentioned. They even tried to put rabies inside of ticks. So, so there, there are a lot of, of like, like experiments, experiments to get, to down, get down to a list, list of maybe, maybe you know eight, eight go to biological weapons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. And then you know, obviously, you've made um, you've shared the story of how you know this. Um, it makes sense that it's you know in the northeast and on the you know east coast, and then. Um, you know, and now we're seeing this, as you mentioned, um, even with the under our skin, how we were able, you know, the, that movement has gotten this recognized in 50 states, but also people can get infected, you know, in, you know, 50 states, um, you know, and how, you know, what has your, I mean, I've seen some interesting insights and books and stories of how, you know, um, this has really um, become ubiquitous in, you know, our environment and um, any of your research to point to why it spread in the ways that it, it has. Um, um, so, so if you, if you, uh, if you if look, you look at, at the places, places where, where bioweapons, bioweapons were, tested, were tested, you know, you know there was, there was Fort Detrick, Maryland, 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 that was, that the, was headquarters. the headquarters. They did a lot, they did a lot of open-air open tests, tests there. there. I mean, I mean Willie, Willie has told, has told another person that they released ticks there. there. Um, um, then you, then have you have Plum Island, Island right, right off, off of Lyme, Connecticut, Connecticut and off of Long Island. Island and, and that was, that was an, an anti-animal bioweapons program. program. And, you know, there, there was... Uh, a lot, a of, lot tests of tests there, there where, where ticks, ticks or birds or, birds or lizards, lizards or deer, or deer could, have could have picked, picked up, up the diseases and spread them. Spread them. Um, um, you, have you have the uh, you have the tick releases, releases in, Virginia in Virginia and in Montana. And, in Montana. and, and you know, you Willie, know, Willie once would always, would always say there's, there's no such thing as a, a clean, clean tick. tick. So, so were those ticks really clear of other diseases? I mean, these are all scientific questions that people might be able to prove. Um, but, um, but I'm just I'm presenting, presenting the facts, facts as, I've as I've seen them. Then, then we had, we had um, the, the sort of the mastermind, mastermind between the bio, for, the for the biological program after World War II was Ira Baldwin, Baldwin, who at some point, at some point was, was dean of University, University of Wisconsin, Wisconsin in Madison. And he, and he did, did a lot, a lot of open air tests in the, the or he, or he managed, managed them, them in the Wisconsin, Wisconsin Minnesota area. area. And, that, and that's the first, the first place, place where Lyme disease showed up. Or the, or the, the thing, the that, thing we that we call Lyme disease, Lyme disease now. now. Um, 
Um, um, and, and then, then we had, we had uh, an, airborne an airborne program, program run, run and shipboard, and shipboard program, program run by the Navy, Navy mostly. mostly. And there and were there experiments, experiments with, with live bacteria, bacteria off, off San Francisco, Francisco uh, off Catalina, Catalina Island, Island um, um, up, in, up in Canada. Canada. And, and there, there were uh, tick-borne, tick-borne diseases released, released two places, two places in Alaska, in Alaska um, off, off Hawaii, Hawaii in the Pacific, in the Pacific Ocean. Ocean. So, so, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's, it's there's just there's pockets, pockets of, of weird diseases, diseases right, now, right now, and, and I think I it think really it really helps for us to look at. Look at, look at um, um, the spread, the spread of, these of these diseases with the biological, biological weapons program, program in mind, mind because, because it would explain, explain a lot of things. things. You know, you know epidemiologists have been treating like, like, oh, it's oh, just climate change, change and it's humans, humans moving, moving into forests, forests and overpopulation of deer. deer. This is this just, is just another, another factor, factor that needs to be folded into epidemiologists' analyses. Yeah, such a great point and such a, of course, after... Sharing your conversation today, just an obvious place to look. And, you know, everywhere you're mentioning, I'm just thinking of patients I have and, you know, those areas, right? And so, um, so yeah, that, that, that absolutely raises, um, you know, a lot of questions. And um, I believe um, Willie died of Parkinson's, right? Parkinson's disease, is that correct? Yeah, yeah complications due to Parkinson's. And yes. do, do you feel that that, um, you know, was he ever tested for Lyme disease or was that ever looked at? Because, you know, our, our view of most neurological illnesses is that, you know, Lyme or co-infections can be a huge trigger to those. So did do you know if he was ever tested? Uh, I... I I think, I think he, well, well what, he, what, thought he thought he had Lyme disease, disease and, I and I read his NIH workers, workers comp form. form. So, so he, he says, says that the year after, after he discovered Lyme disease, Lyme disease he was, he was in, cleaning, in cleaning infected, infected rabbit, rabbit cages and the urine splashed, splashed in his eyes and he believed he, believe, believe he, he got Lyme disease and he was certainly very, very sick after that. His co-workers tested him and positive. There was just an argument whether he really had Lyme disease, but he had... What looked, what looked like, like five, five uh, lime rashes in his, his armpit, uh, and, and he 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 felt felt like, like he said it he to said several, it to several people, people felt like maybe his Parkinson's, Parkinson's could have been, been caused, caused by, by that, that infection. I know he, I know also, he also had Rickettsial infections when he was in charge, charge of Rickettsials at, at uh, Rocky Mountain Lab. Mountain Lab. So, so who knows? Who knows? I, know I know he asked Doctor Steer for advice too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. It, it's the those connections, of course. Um, you know, um, you know, I'm making. I'm like, of course, you know, it, it's not far fetched to be to see that that, of course, that was a trigger to his Parkinson's. Um, but, but yeah, what a what a wild story. I mean, and you said, I mean, you already mentioned that he was probably a cog um, in this whole operation. Do you feel like when you were connecting with him, you know, his intentions? more you know good or, or or bad really what were your thoughts um, um you know, you know he's, a, he's complicated, a complicated interesting, interesting character, character. And, and you know personally, you know, personally I, liked I liked him i thought he was, I thought he was uh, an amazing, an amazing sort of sort of european, european heritage, heritage gentleman a really, a really meticulous, meticulous scientist, scientist you know so, so to me what, me, what was, was interesting, interesting is, is his life, his life story, story arc. arc so i mean i mean primarily, primarily the book bitten is a biography really how he was, he was a, a, a young, young ambitious, ambitious Swiss, Swiss German, German researcher, researcher who came, came to Rocky, to Rocky Mountain, Mountain Lab t- and, and immediately joined the bioweapons bio program. program. And, and he was very excited, excited about his work, about his work. As, as he got, got older. older. 
he, I think he, I think he realized, realized the implications of what he was, what he was doing, doing and, 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 the and the gravity of it. And, and he started, he started feeling, feeling guilty. guilty. Um, and, and, you know, towards, you know, towards the, the end of his life, life especially, especially when he was suffering, was suffering from what, from what, from what may, or may or may not have been Lyme disease, he felt, he felt like, like being the Swiss guy, the neutral Swiss guy that he is, maybe he wanted to set the record right and level the playing field. So, you know, you know, he, he let several, several journalists, journalists in and, and he told, told his story, story you, know, you know, and he had, he had advanced, advanced Parkinson's, but his, his, his brain, brain was, all, was there, all there and he knew what he, knew he, was, what he was saying, saying. He, was he was not making stuff, stuff up and, and certainly, certainly the documentation, documentation that, I that I collected corroborated what he was saying that he believes that there was a bioweapons origin for several of the microbes that were in the Lyme area. He never said that really Dorferi was the weapon. It could, it have, could been, have been, maybe he just, he just wasn't, wasn't saying it, but um, it, looks it looks like, like it was a Ketzel, Ketzel or a viral, viral co-infection that may have, may have been the thing, the chronically, chronically disabling, disabling thing that we call, that we call Lyme, Lyme disease, disease now. now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's so amazing that you were able to, um, you know, connect with him personally, right, as you were going through all of this research. Um and, you know, with, you know, with everything that we've kind of gone over and in light of your own, you know, personal journey, Chris, um, how, you know, as, clin- you know, as a clinician and, you know, speaking to other clinicians or potential patients out there, I mean, do we need to think of treatment differently of Lyme and co-infections um, given its potential bioweapon origin? Um, um, <laughs> you know, you know. Uh, well, well, I remember, I remember talking, talking about biosecurity, bioweapons bio specialist who's, who's in, in, you know, in, in DC, DC and, and, and he was lecturing, lecturing to some Stanford students and I was sitting, and I was sitting in on it and he goes, he goes well, well, doctors, doctors are, so are so confused because, because it's not, not a disease, disease. It's, it's, it's a weapon. A weapon. <laughs> so, so certainly, certainly uh, <laughs> that's, that's, which is sort of depressing, but you have to say 50 years later, you have to hope that they... The virulence, the virulence has, has dissipated, dissipated since, since the release, the release originally, originally happened because, because it, it a good, a good parasite, parasite does not kill its host, right? right. Mm-hmm. But, but, but what we really need is the government, the government to declassify these experiments. Like, like, what did, what you, did you release where? where? And, and what was, what the, was research the research that you that did behind, behind releasing, releasing this germ? germ? Because, because if they weaponized any germ, they would have tested vaccines and they would have done animal studies. So, so one of the one main, of the main messages, messages in the book is, book is let's, have let's, a, have a, let's have let's have a congressional investigation where we release, release this stuff, stuff because, because we'll, we'll save billions, billions of research, research dollars if we know what was released when and what, and what the research was to back that up. And, and um, you know, you know there's, there's just there's a lot, there's a lot of things keeping people from releasing that. You know, there's there's horrendous legal bills and lawsuits to deal with. Just, just as, as um, we've had, we've to, had do to do with Agent Orange, Orange and, and the Tuskegee, the Tuskegee experiments, experiments, which were, which all, were designed all designed by the same, by the same people, people that thought of these bioweapons, you know. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, but, but it's, it's, you know, the Cold, the Cold War, War is, is over. over. It's, it's time that we look forward. forward and, and, you know, you know if you, let's look let's at look COVID. There's some flaws in the public health system. That were, that were invisible, invisible to us, us not to not Lyme, Lyme patients, until, until we had, we had a really, really rapidly spreading, spreading virulent, virulent disease. And so, and so now these, now these hairline cra- cracks, cracks in the system, system that all, that all Lyme, Lyme patients, patients knew about, knew about mm-hmm. um, are, are breaking, breaking the dam. The dam you know? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. I know this is such a challenging time on so many levels, but I agree if there's a silver lining to, you know, for us, you know, more and more people to wake up and to have this awareness because only from there uh, change can happen, right? And I, I think there's so many um, aspects about our um, healthcare and our recognition of, you know, how we treat you know, people with not only, you know, obviously acute illnesses, but really chronic illnesses. And um, yeah, I, I think you're right. I think this is like a, a, a huge opportunity for us to um, really reinvent a, a better way. You know, I'm, I'm an optimist and in spite of it all. So I, I, I always try to look at that, that piece as well. Yeah, yeah, I am too. I am too. And, and um, so, so I'm looking, I'm looking at, the at the COVID disaster, disaster as, an, as opportunity an opportunity to fix, to fix the things, the things that, are broken, that are broken, you know, you know we need, we need a, rapid, a rapid direct, direct test, test for Lyme, for Lyme disease, disease and COVID. COVID. Um, um, we need, we need multi, multi, we need, we need to, to treat, treat to not, to not, to not, not take away the see attitude, attitude on treating, on treating and, and not be not so stingy, stingy with antibiotics, antibiotics and, uh, more, more research. research. Oh, better, oh, better tracking, better tracking. Yeah. I was going to ask, what do we need? So that's perfect. You know, um, you know, winding down of our conversation. And yeah, I absolutely, you know, agree of all of this. And I, I think you're right. I think the research, the funding is so big. And I, I, you know, I think about the clinicians on the front lines who treat Lyme and, you know, we're, we don't, we don't learn this in school. You know, we learn this from our patients. Of course, there's wonderful organizations out there that are educating, you know, um, physicians currently, but, um, but I, I always think like, what would we, like how, how much better, um, equipped and how much better able would we be to serve our patients if there was a research arm, um, you know, really helping us, you know, perfect our treatments and, you know, perfect our testing and, you know, putting these pieces together. So I, yeah, I envision, you know, a future where, you know, hey, can we have a, you know, our version of the Mayo Clinic for, you know, the illnesses we treat, you know, so we'll, we'll put it out there, Chris, I, I know you're really working hard still to make that vision a reality. And I really, um, yeah, applaud you for your work and your continued de dedication. There's so many people that you're helping and serving that really um, don't have a big voice in, you know, creating the change. So, so thank you. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank, and, and thank you, and for, thank the you for the work you do. You do. I, know. I know it's, it's never, never ending and challenging. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, no, I, it's all of the above, but really rewarding, right? You know, I know your doctor was probably so thrilled to see you on the other end of your journey. And no, I, that's, that's why we all do this. So, um, so Chris, if people want to learn more about your work or how to support you, obviously we will, we're going to link to, um, your website and, um, you know, your book bitten, I absolutely recommend it. I, I, um, have it on audible. I, I can't, you know, I will, um, let go of the idea of reading books. I'm a, I'm an auditory listener and with my schedule, I, I listen to books now. Um, but I, um, yeah. How can people learn more about your work and support what you're doing right now? Um, um, the, the website, website chrisnewby.com um, um, has, has uh, vintage, vintage photos, photos from the book and information. Uh, you can, uh, you order, can order a book, a book through, through you know, you know, Harper Collins publisher, publisher or Amazon. Amazon. And, and the paperback, the paperback comes, comes out at the, at the end, of end of June. So, so your price sensitive. And then, and then I, know I know a lot of Lyme people have, have trouble with, with vision, vision issues. So, so I do think, I do think Kindle, Kindle with large print, print and the audio book have helped a lot of Lyme patients. Awesome. 
Well, thank you so much for your time and this, yeah, really insightful conversation. And um, yeah, I so appreciate the work you're doing, Chris. So thank you. Well, thanks well, a thanks lot, a lot, Dr. Schaffner. Dr. Schaffner. I, appreciate I appreciate the, the time, time to spread, to spread the, word. the word. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Chris Newby. Please check out her website, chrisnewby.com. And I hope everyone is staying healthy and well during this time.